counter guy thanks for stopping by once again we're gonna go back to the decade near and dear to my heart the 1980s where we're gonna hear mike peters of the band the alarm tell some stories and play a few acoustic numbers and cat taylor is gonna help us revisit the time when three of the four ramones took president reagan to task about his visit to a cemetery in germany but my first guest john sonic sculpture young talks about meeting the songstress melissa manchester who I remember roller skating to quite a bit back in the 80s. I was the business manager for the concert committee portion of the student government at the University of Bridgeport in Connecticut and um, put on uh, you know, a, a rather impressive series of concerts. So I was responsible for negotiating with the booking agents to book the talent and then um, book the sound and light contractors for the shows and so on and so forth. But part of that responsibility also entailed meeting the artists when they arrived on campus for the show and arranging for catering for them in the green room according to specifications and the riders of their contracts. What were some odd specifications? Do you remember any? Oh, you know, the things you hear about, uh, you know, certain kinds of flowers, you know, particular bottles of wine or liquor. They wanted certain flowers in their room? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and sometimes it was more of a psyops thing. They just wanted to see what they could get away with, right? You know, and who would bend over backwards and and who would just politely laugh and say no, <laughs> right? But uh, you know, they'd grab for as much as they could get. One artist we did was Melissa Manchester, and uh, she had a uh, a string of uh, of hits. And this this is dating back into the early mid '70s, but you know, her career spanned a couple of decades. I'd not heard of her. I'm a musician myself, uh, but I was listening to different music at the time. I wasn't really listening to pop radio. Mm -hmm. I was starting to get into jazz and jazz fusion and prog rock and things like that. So my my attention, my radar was focused elsewhere Mm -hmm. musically. So Melissa Manchester arrives with her tour bus and uh, I'm escorting her to the green room and small talk and, you know, uh, hope she finds everything to her satisfaction and uh, it's in the uh, interest of conversation I asked when her first album was coming out. (laughs) 
And uh, it turned out it had been out for a year and a half. And that's why she was on tour, as a matter of fact. And, uh, you know, I, I got the glare of death. And, and <laughs> there was about a 60-second pregnant pause where we both kind of stammered and looked at each other. And then we both just busted out laughing because she realized she wasn't as famous as she thought she was. That's cool. I mean, you know... <laughs> And I realized that I had a lot to learn about, uh, you know, knowing who you're booking and, and uh, proper, proper etiquette and protocol <laughs> and doing your homework, you know, right? <laughs> study up on uh, who you're booking and why you're booking them. And, you know, that, that yes, they actually do have a fan base. Yeah. They have hits on the radio and so on and so forth. So the, the performance went well. And oh, yeah, it was great. You know, did she we, ask when your record was coming out? No. <laughs> no, but you know, we, we got along fine after that. No, uh, no hard feelings. No, that's critical. No harm, no foul. <laughs> <laughs> Just a few days ago, DJ Mindub invited me to go see Mike Peters of The Alarm, who was playing in Nashville, Tennessee. The Alarm was part of the big sound faction of new wave music in the 80s, and even though they didn't have a record deal when they first came to America, they had the best fans ever. Four guys you might know as U2. Bono and the boys invited The Alarm to open for him on their 1983 War tour, and the rest was history. I snuck my tiny recording device into the show and captured a few stories told and some acoustic renditions performed by Mike Peters. So we'll hear that after Mindub and I get giddy in the ride home, having just had our photo taken with Mr. Peters. Okay, so we are in the parking lot at the city winery in Nashville, Tennessee. And we just got out of seeing the alarm. Yes, we did. So, any thoughts? It was great. It was everything I wanted it to be, uh, having not ever had a chance to see them. How did you first hear of them? Do you remember? Uh, this probably isn't going to make me sound very cool, but I would go to the record stores, and when you walk in the record store in the front, they would have the cutout bin, and they would have tapes that had been sawed you know, had a cut yeah. in the case or whatever. Yeah, so they would sell these, you know, great tapes in the cutout bin, and they were like three for 10 bucks or something, you know, so they were mm -hmm. discounted, and so I would go through and I would grab like all these tapes, because they were cheap. Right. So to be honest, I actually picked up Declaration by the Alarm because it was in the cutout bin. You didn't know who they were before? I was not familiar with them. I hadn't heard them. They were just a band that sounded like something that I would like. They were on IRS Records. Exactly. So they were on a great label. The artwork was cool. Just the name of the band sounded like it would fall right in line with, you know, other things I was into. You know, we didn't have the internet back then to, you know, find out about bands or, or anything. So it was just kind of had to buy things at the store based on what the name was or what the cover looked like. Mm. I bought so many CD, you know, albums, tapes, just based on covers, you know, and a lot of them I was pleasantly surprised, a lot of them I was 
really disappointed. But that's honestly how I got introduced to them, was just the fact that their tape was cheap mm -hmm. and I could uh, get it for <laughs> a couple dollars. I was trying to think, I don't really remember when I first heard them. I do know that in Indiana, the first song of theirs that was ever played on the radio that I remember was, wasn't until way later, it was Sold Me Down the River off the Change record. But I do remember it got intense when I got into college because of a couple of other Floridians beside yourself, uh, right. Carl Nystrom and uh, Big Wayne Felber. And they were huge alarm fans. And so that, I think uh, they may have encouraged me more to get into them, but. Okay, we're gonna hear some recordings from the concert. Uh, a song which is uh, from the Declaration album uh, originally and uh, it's um, a song which owes itself in some ways to uh, uh, being inspired as a young man by the words of uh, Dylan Thomas, the Welsh poet, who's always been my uh, favourite poet and uh, you may or may know, not know that it's, uh, he's the guy that Bob Dylan stole his name from. So uh, we can lay claim to uh, owning some of the protest folk music of America all the way from Wales. So this is a song which really is um, in light of some of the dangers I've faced in life. Uh, the poems have carried me through, so particularly this one that says, uh, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Love on this wasteland, this is howling wind. the times I've come to Nashville, it turned out to be uh, really special days and uh, days I'll never forget in many ways. And uh, back here in uh, 2013, when uh, I was here with Big Country, I'd heard about this uh, recording booth at Third Man Records, just around the corner. And uh, so uh, before the, uh, we played somewhere the night before and um, I traveled overnight and I uh, rented a car with uh, Jules and the kids, and uh, we got here in the middle of the night, and we uh, we parked outside the third man. And we waited till it opened, <laughs> and uh, I went in, and I said, uh, "Can I use the recording booth?" And they said, "Yeah, sure, of course you can. Yes, yeah, twenty bucks a go." I said, "Great, I want to have thirty goes, please." <laughs> and I spent the day because I'd realised it was very close to the thirtieth anniversary of uh, the release of 68 Guns Will Never Die. So I spent the whole day in Third Man Records recording 68 Guns and putting them onto the six inch vinyl and, and I wanted to release them to commemorate the 30th anniversary and have 30 copies. It was a long day because I'd record the song and then the machine would play it back to you before it let you have the record. So I, was, I heard it 60 times. That sounds like a deal you get in Nashville, right? And uh, anyway, uh, today I come here and I realise we're round about the time of the 30th anniversary of uh, a song called Rain in the Summertime. 
So I went to Third Man Records. <laughs> and I got a 30th anniversary of Rain in the Summertime in the studio. But we've had an amazing day. We came here early and we went to visit our, our friends at Pearl Drums and at Hona Harmonicas are all here tonight. And uh, we went to the, uh, the final lunch, as I said earlier, had a great time with Tim there. And then Jules and I were walking down Broadway and uh, we went into this store and uh, we met a really great gentleman named Donovan Nugent who's uh, kitted out Jules in this hat tonight. And, uh, you know, for someone who's uh, just survived breast cancer, all the women in the audience might know exactly what's going on. But the kindness that he showed us today is really a, will not be measured by just what's happened here today. So I want to thank Donovan and by extension all the people in Nashville because he represents your community. So thanks for showing us such a kindness here today and making us feel extremely welcome here in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you very much. We are really a long time So yeah, 30 years ago we recorded this song. If I run fast enough I can leave the pain and the sadness behind. This is called to feel the rain in the summertime. with Bob Dylan, that was something else, you know, um, he was a, uh, he was a real challenge at times, you know, uh, <laughs> we probably stayed in the worst hotel Nashville has to offer, because uh, Bob Dylan didn't like air conditioning, so he used to pick the worst Motel 6 as he could find, as long as he had a swimming pool, and every day I'd be swimming then, and Bob would go past. <laughs> Amazing character, and uh, he invited me up on stage to sing with him twice, which was very gracious of me. He loved Wales, he loved uh, some of the songs we sang. Uh, we used to do The Bells of Rumney by Pete Seeger, an American writer, which was a poem written by Idris Davis from Wales. And uh, it was a great days, and uh, really thrilling to, to go and sing with Bob Dylan. And, and once, uh, time uh, on the Bob Dylan tour in 1988 and we were crossing the, the border into Canada and uh, Bob Dylan had to get off his tour bus and show his passport just like all of us when we crossed the border into Canada that's what you got to do so I was stood right behind Bob Dylan going through immigration he had a hoodie up but I knew it was Bob Dylan so, yeah, I checked his passport and I looked over his shoulder I saw his photograph and his passport and it said Robert Zimmerman <laughs> Anyway, uh, I was stood in the queue, we were at a border crossing, and this melody arrived in my imagination. There are no frontiers, we can't cross tonight. That became a song on the Change album, and I always think that was probably, you know, where the songs come from, they arrive in your person, they're sensing messages from the other side. And I like to think with that song, it was the big man upstairs was sending it down for Bob Dylan. <laughs> Missed! <laughs> Got me instead. It's called There Are No Frontiers. A thousand miles before us Long is the road The mountain high The valley low Our love is stronger 
In the tears of a river, I see the wrong. Hear the mountain cry, cry anger. Feel the pain in the valley below. I wanna run where the sunlight beats on my face. Tonight I will be yours, and you will be. 
In the morning light, hope comes on the dawn. The turning point after all these years. In the strength of the hardship, I knew we'd make it through. So throw back your hair, baby, dreams are coming true. Oh no, there's blood, sweat, and tears now. Oh no, I got you. You got me. And that's all we need. Because uh, this has got something to do with absolute reality. You see, the last time, uh, one of the times we came back here, 2003, we came here touring America, the alarm was reborn again, and uh, we were playing all the stuff we were known for, and, and uh, everyone was coming up to me and saying, when are we going to get some new alarm music, Michael? And I said, uh, let me get in the studio and we're going to make a new album and we went in the studio and uh, we had so much to say that we didn't just make one album we made five <laughs> called in the poppy fields and one of those songs had something about it and uh, james here said to me you know what mike if this was by a new band be a massive hit you see we, we were at that point in our career where you know, the three strikes and you're out rule applied. You know, the, the lineup had changed. We all had a four at the beginning of our age rather than in the, just the second numeric. And the hair, instead of going that way, 
know what that means, fellas. It's going that way. Three strikes and you're out. It kind of applied in some ways, especially when it comes to the music industry. And uh, in Britain at the time, there was this phrase coined by BBC Radio 1 that said, in new music, we trust. I just didn't trust that at all. I kept thinking, what about in good music we trust? Kind of obvious, isn't it? So, we sat around in the pub and we had probably one or two many drinks more than we should have done. We hatched a plan to put out a, a single under a fake name. And we we're on the Vans Warp Tour right now, mixing it up with all the best that young America has to offer. And we created a Vans Warped Tour type of band. We got four 18-year-old kids out of our audience to come and pretend to be us in the music video. We created a fake website, a fake biography, photographs of this band called the Poppy Fields that we said we managed. And we sent it out to the BBC, to MTV, the NME, the New Musical Express. Well, they fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. They really thought this was a brand new band. So much so that the NME made the record single of the week. And in the review, they said, the best new band in Britain. They sound like Rancid meets The Clash. They said, this is the kind of band that goes to the party, drinks all the beer, and goes home with the best looking girls. They kind of got that bit right. And then they said, they even sound a bit like the alarm. <laughs> well, we said that it went on the playlist on In New Music We Trust, they bought it. Here's some new music we trust, the poppy fields, they said. They put it right on the playlist. It was played all over Britain. On the Sunday night, the record goes straight into the UK top 20 right into the top of the pops and we had to, I phoned the BBC network and said, my friends, you've been had. The poppy fields is not what you think it is. That is the alarm in disguise. You have been had, my friends. Yeah, that's right. We struck a blow for our generation. A while back I had this idea to support my obsession for both the 1980s and world history to use a song from the decade that might have had some historical context or reference point to jumpstart a conversation on a particular happening. We did that first with the song New Year's Day by U2 and ended up discussing Lech Walesa and the Solidarity Movement's struggle against communism back on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episode 60. Well, with the help of my friend and frontman of the punk band Rednecks in Pain and Fun Girls from Mount Pilot, Cat Taylor, we're going to discuss a song by the Ramones and how it related to President Ronald Reagan. We're going to do My Brain is Hanging Upside Down by the Ramones. It was originally released under the title Bonzo Goes to Bitburg. 
uh, when it was released as a single over in Great Britain. And when they released it on their Animal Boy album in America, they changed the name to My Brain is Hanging Upside Down, in parentheses, Bonzo Goes to Bitburg. Okay. Now, why was the name changed? The name was changed because Johnny Ramone, the guitarist, who was pretty much the uh, leader of the band, uh, was a staunch conservative and a Reagan supporter, which was very different than the other members. Joey and Dee Dee were very liberal, and um, I assume the drummers, I assume they were very liberal too, because uh, the only one I ever heard referred to as a conservative was Johnny. But yeah, he insisted that they not call it that. Right. Yeah, I don't think he wanted the song recorded at all, but I guess so because yeah, the song definitely you know got released as a single, got yeah. released on their album, right. and it was a single off the album. He played right. it live, he played on the album, so uh, I guess you know he decided to give into the band as a whole. Although typically he was he got the final say on everything, was the leader you know the leader of the band. So kind of surprising that he let that one go. So. For most of the folks who didn't grow up in the 80s, they have no idea who Bonzo is and what that refers to. Okay, Bonzo is a, well, Ray, Ronald Reagan, as many people know, was an actor before he ever got into politics. And he did a couple movies, uh, Bedtime for Bonzo. Well, there was one, that was one when Bonzo was like a chimpanzee that he had with him, um, which actually, there was another sidebar here. The Dead Kennedys released an album called Bedtime for Democracy, basically uh -huh. mocking, you know, Reagan as the as the president mm -hmm. and then the movie after that was uh, Bonzo goes to it wasn't Bitburg but it was I can't remember where <laughs> he it, went somewhere yeah but actually Ronald Reagan wasn't even in that movie so. okay. yeah. but anyway that's where they got the name Bonzo goes to Bitburg and Bonzo right. kind of became a de facto nickname for Ronald right. Reagan towards the end of his career he was as a movie actor, he was making B-movies and kind of silly stuff. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen the movie? I have not. Well, I actually watched it a few years ago. It's not horrible, but it's just like one of those silly afternoon movies where, you know, there's a monkey and yeah. just the <laughs> hilarity ensues, you know? I, you know, definitely there's something that changes about the culture's humor. And uh -huh. uh, when you go back and watch old movies like that today, a lot of things that people thought were funny just really aren't by today's standards. Right, right. I imagine they'll look at people, you know, Heck, you know, as old as we are now, I imagine, mm. you know, kids coming up now, look, mm. look at stuff we thought was hilarious and think, yeah. I don't get it, you know? And I remember in the 80s, they tried to marginalize his acting because they would, you know, especially on the left, they just hated him, period. Sure. They would find any weakness. And, uh, but, you know, he actually was a pretty big movie star before mm -hmm. all that. And then he made the movie to television before a lot of uh, movie stars had really taken it as a legitimate uh, medium. But mm -hmm. uh, he had the GE Theater. And uh, hosted that in Stardust and things. But that's a side note. Let's go back to the actual event. What was Bitburg? Bitburg was a cemetery in Germany where there were uh, over 2,000 uh, German soldiers buried there. Many of them, and the reason when you hear the other side of the story from you know from the Reagan Reagan and his supporters, Reagan went over there to celebrate uh, West Germany's new formed alliance or friendship with America. It was to honor a new Germany, and he was also honoring the the victims of World War II, including many German soldiers that died that were not in an alliance with the Nazis. However, because there were the actual count was there were 49. SS soldiers buried at Bitburg Cemetery out of over 2,000. Right. So, and the other thing that I understood was said was any cemetery you go to in Germany has some Nazi soldiers in it yeah. uh, because of attrition. You know, there's with all the people that served and all the deaths in, in, during that time, you know, there wouldn't be any other place to bury them. So, 
I think common sense would tell you that Ronald Reagan didn't go over there with the idea I'm going to support Nazism. Right, you know? right. But that was the you know the result of the visit right. was it got a lot of controversy, a lot of heat because there were Nazi soldiers buried there and seeing him hanging a wreath there, you know, was a a bad press moment. I sure. Guess. And then Joey Ramon was Jewish. Joey right? Ramon was Jewish, yes. Okay. He was particularly offended by it. Although, according to Joey's brother Mickey, Didi Ramon, the bass player, actually inspired the, the more of the writing of the song. Yeah. I believe, if as things typically go, um, probably Joey wrote the lyrics. Maybe Didi helped with the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Didi wrote most of the music. And then also, Gene Bouvoir, who produced a lot of Ramon's albums mm-hmm. and used to play bass in the Plasmatics, mm-hmm. he helped write some of it too. So. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to jump in, I guess. I'm going to use as a source Evan Morse's uh, biography of, of Ronald Reagan. And uh, this was the official biography, although the Reagans weren't happy with it in the end. They had asked him to write it, and I think um, it's odd at times. He creates a fictional character who it tells the story. Oh. Okay. And it was it, it made it as if he was his childhood friend, Reagan's childhood friend and all this. But Interesting. So there's that, and I think it was maybe a little critical of them more than they cared to have. But nonetheless, this particular incident, uh, Helmut Kohl was the chancellor of Germany, and he had asked the Reagans to come, as you said before, celebrate this new Germany, very democratic, and the Nazi years are way behind them and all that. France's president had come in 1982, I think it was, maybe 84, I don't remember, but he, he had also done the same thing already. And, you know, France suffered even worse than we did. I would guess 82, because I think Reagan actually went over in 84. Okay, so that would make sense, 82. Because I know that the Too Tough to Die album was released in 84, and the single of uh, Bonzi was a Big Bird came out after that album and before Animal Boy. Okay. So Animal go. Boy came out in 86. Okay, so 82 it is. In Reagan's mind, in Helmut Kohl's mind, this was a bit of a gesture that those days are long gone. Also, a sense of forgiveness. In addition to other things you said, like the, the, a lot of those people that were buried there had no choice in the matter anyway. And that's a big thing because with Reagan and being a very devout Christian, you know, there's forgiveness, there's redemption. And, and it's in Judaism as well. But I think a lot of the outcry that came later came from a lot of secular Jews that weren't observant anyway, or that to them that's not in their in their worldview. You know, that, it's funny when you mentioned that thing about forgiveness, I was remembering a quote from Joey Ramone about this song, and he said that, well, in Reagan's mind, we should just forgive and forget Nazism. How do you forgive the gassing and killing of six million Jews? And, right, which wasn't what he was going over there to do necessarily. Right, you know, of course, some of the things I read defending it never really said that, you know, Reagan said we need to forgive the Nazis. And I remember in his defense, one of the quotes from him was something like, you know, Nazism was a terrible, atrocious thing. Mike Deaver had been assured by the German government that there were no SS troops. We'll come to find out there were, and even after it was announced, like, oh, by the way, there's these 49 SS troops who apparently were all teenagers and conscripted at the last minute for the Battle of the Bulge, it still looked bad. And Reagan was the kind of person that if he'd already said he was going to do something, he was going to do it regardless, even if it made him look bad, and he was kind of stubborn in that respect. And even Nancy Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, both had asked him not to go, you know, is this going to look and one of the biggest critics, and actually I believe he was friendly with Reagan up to this point, was Elie Wiesel, who was a Holocaust survivor himself. And this was completely coincidental. He was scheduled to get the, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, I believe, from Reagan, uh, maybe a week or so before, or it was very close to this time period. And Wiesel had publicly 
condemn this proposed visit. So they met privately before the ceremony where he was supposed to get this Medal of Freedom, and Elie Wiesel, you know, basically pleaded with him, please, you know, I, I know you're a friend of the Jews. He was considered the, the friendliest president to, to Judaism ever, you know, because he was very pro-Israel and, and some other things. And this was putting that into question, of course. To express his hurt, Elie Wiesel had said in a public statement, I cannot believe that the president whom I have seen crying at a Holocaust remembrance ceremony would visit a German military cemetery and refuse to visit Dachau. And Elie Wiesel was not a partisan party hack. You know, he wasn't just a, like a yellow dog Democrat who would just attack him for no reason because even after that he would go on to uh, defend George W. Bush with the invasion of Iraq because he felt that Saddam Hussein was the Hitler to the Kurds as a Jew in the Holocaust. He'd have to support the Kurds. And I think what made it even worse was the fact that Reagan was not going to any concentration camps to lay a wreath there. What I understand he'd already been years before, and he'd even taken his children to one of the concentration camps to put it in their minds like this is the evil that men do and you know never forget and that kind of thing. Also when he was in the service he never fought in World War II because I think he had some eyesight problems or something uh, but he was in the media part of the army and uh, he was one of the first to actually see the films of the death camps being opened up and he took some of the films out and would show them the people that would say that the Holocaust had been exaggerated so he was a defender of the Jews and what they were saying had happened at Auschwitz and Birchenwald. And so it wasn't on the schedule he was going to a, a concentration camp. So somebody changed it, so he was going. In fact, he went before he went to the, the graveyard, and there he made this speech. What we have seen makes unforgettably clear that no one of the rest of us can fully understand the enormity of the feelings carried by the victims of these camps. The survivors carry a memory beyond anything that we can comprehend. The awful evil started by one man, an evil that victimized all the world with its destruction, was uniquely destructive of the millions forced into the grim abyss of these camps. Here lie people, Jews, whose death was inflicted for no reason other than their very existence. Their pain was born only because of who they were and because of the God in their prayers. Alongside them lay many Christians, Catholics and Protestants. For year after year, until that man and his evil were destroyed, hell yawned forth its awful contents. People were brought here for no other purpose but to suffer and die, to go unfed when hungry, uncared for when sick, tortured, when the whim struck and left to have misery consume them when all there was around them was misery. Hope leads us, if we're prepared to trust it, toward what our President Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. And then rising above all this cruelty, out of this tragic and nightmarish time, beyond the anguish, the pain, and the suffering for all time, we can and must pledge never again. You know, think about uh, Bill Clinton. He stood with Yasser Arafat, who had you know, personally ordered the execution of Jews. And, the, you know, of course, he supposedly changed his mind, or that's what they say, and some people insist that he never did. He just pretended like he did to 
for the survival of the PLO. But nonetheless, here's a guy who clearly was a terrorist and clearly had hated Jews. And actually, that was part of his platform to eradicate Israel. He made the gesture that, you know, people can be forgiven, people can change. So. I think that in order to have any kind of diplomacy, you have to meet with some pretty horrible people. And certainly if someone doesn't like whoever it is, mm -hmm. they're going to take pictures and say, look at him palling around with this right. guy. You know, it's like, well, it's yeah. palling around. It's, you know, right. it's, it's part of what you have they're to trying do. To, yeah, they're trying to get a deal out of it or trying to avert a war. Right. Or I think, you know, when people want to bake this stuff into something that big, it's, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times it's just really overdoing it. And you don't leave any room for yourself. We all make mistakes. We mm -hmm. all are selfish. You know, we, we all do things and we, we want to be forgiven. Okay. I guess what it all boils down to is, you know, nobody makes perfect decisions yeah. about anything. Right. And especially in a, in a political sense, right. anything you do is going to be looked at. If it looks bad, it can be made to look bad. Sure. You know? And then the defense of the Ramones. In the future, we're going to hit some songs that maybe political or talk about history that just don't have the facts right at all, either out of ignorance or just deception. And with this song, it's just an opinion piece, I feel. Yeah, and it is. It's more Joey's reaction to the incident. I mean, there's a few, you know, sarcastic remarks in there, like, you know, goes to Big then he goes out for a cup of tea, like, oh, yeah. it's no big deal. But, yeah, you're right, I mean, it's not like they're really reciting a whole lot. Is it? Of course, it would be kind of bad for Ramones to do that, because if you read most of their lyrics, they're not writing from, usually from intellectual point of view. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, right. gabba gabba hey, you know. But, but you know, no one should really look into Ramones for any kind of political lessons or factual lessons, because, I mean, that just wasn't right. the kind of band they were. It's definitely their most politically oriented song. It's a very unusual song for them because of, number one, the subject matter, and number two, the production of the song. It's very, you know, most of their stuff is a lot rawer and faster, and this, I mean, this has, like, big time production on it mm -hmm. for you know a punk rock band. If you listen to it, especially compared to their other stuff or but from in a modern context, it's people think of the Ramones as a very basic raw rock and roll band. They did start that way, but that song and actually several others around that time were very, very produced, probably overproduced. Mm. And I've read a lot of um, reviews of the song talking about how it's like the only song where Joey's like really kind of snarling, like really disgusted me. And although I don't really hear a whole lot of snarling in there, maybe in the lyrics, but his the way he sings, it still seems very Joey to me. There's an addendum, since we last talked about Reagan and the Bitburg incident, a few weeks ago I was interviewing for another podcast a Jewish couple from the Ukraine who had fled the Soviet Union because the Jews had a, a pretty bad time of it. And they mentioned Ronald Reagan, and I totally had forgotten about this. One, he had pushed when Gorbachev and him met for the nuclear disarmament talks. One of the side issues that he had pushed was release of all these Jewish folks they had imprisoned because the Jews were treated particularly bad in the Soviet Union, starting from Stalin on out, even though they were initially involved in the, the government at the revolution. But So anybody that pointed out or criticized how the Soviets were treating Jews ended up in the gulag. The most famous one is, I can't pronounce his name, but Nathan Sharinsky, we'll say. Yeah, it looks like Sharansky. Yeah. Yeah. Nonetheless, he was imprisoned, and uh, it was him in particular that, that Reagan really pushed for, and George Shultz as well had really pushed to get released. And they even were willing to say, hey, just we'll exchange him for one of the spies we had caught, Soviet spies, and we can do it quietly if you want to, if you don't want to be embarrassed and look like you still like the tough guy. <laughs> you know. And so they did quietly make the exchange, and uh, Sharinsky came to the United States. Uh, in addition to that, Reagan also pushed Gorbachev to allow 
Jews in general to freely uh, leave because they were being treated pretty horribly. It's just another example that he wasn't anti-Semitic. Well, you know, America's always had a reputation for being pro-Israel in, right. in the Israel-Palestine conflicts. And recently it seems like, I don't know how you perceive it, and I, I know this is probably not completely black and white, but mm -hmm. it does seem like more recently it seems to be more of a conservative leaning to be pro-Israel, mm -hmm. where it seems like more of the people on the liberal side are getting more Palestinian. There's some history behind there. Like, initially Stalin was for the state of Israel, and then he changed his mind. And ever since then, the left in general, not all, mm -hmm. but the left in general has been against Israel. I've uh, seen it recently, and I wouldn't even say it's completely against it, but yeah, there, yeah. there's definitely a faction that, you know, because everyone's now got to take a side of Nothing to right. be gray anymore. It does seem like when people take a side, the left tend to lean more towards Palestine now. Uh, that's for sure now, without a doubt. I mean, they're to the point that they're even accused of being anti-Semitic. You know, the, the, some of the stuff they say is, some people point out, well, that's the same stuff that Hitler has said, but they don't use the word Jewish, of course, they use the word Israeli. But yeah. and, and I don't want to say that that's exactly the case, that just because you criticize Israel's no, policies. People are quick to jump to calling everything racist, no matter what. Yeah, and the that's, side, that's ridiculous. Because yeah. Israel has made, I think, some bad moves. And, and it's a very complicated story. Yeah. When I actually tried to you know, do my own research on it and read the articles about the mm -hmm. whole history, mm -hmm. it's amazing how people that take such hardcore stances on it can be mm -hmm. so black and white. Sure. Because I mean, when I read the history of how the whole conflict started, I came like confused. I was right. like, With a lot of people blame terrorists, especially the Islamic extremist terrorists, all on Israel. The Muslim Brotherhood existed before Israel ever existed, before mm -hmm. 1948, and they were causing trouble. So. It's, again, it's a little bit of a black and white way of looking at it. If you were interested in hearing that interview with the Ukrainian couple, you can go to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 71. And if you missed the 1980s, as much as I do, you might check out our other 80s series, Legend of the Like Totally Epic Journey Quest, and songs from a 1980s roller rink dumpster, specifically episode 97, where journalist John J. Thompson gives his tribute to the alarm, amongst a few other great under-the-radar artists. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram using the name spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com.